Welcome to episode four of the Planning Life Insights of Brian, a podcast looking into the practical things that you need to know about planning law and practice to navigate your business through the UK planning system. Today, we'll be looking at the white paper entitled Planning for the Future, finally published on the 6th of August for consultation and what it could mean for developers trying to deliver schemes in uncertain times. My name is Sheridan Traeger, Senior Associate in the planning team of law firm Brian Cave, Leighton Paisner. And today I'm joined again by colleagues Claire Eccles, our team's fantastic dedicated knowledge development lawyer, and Gemma Green, a first seat super trainee, as all our trainees are. Good afternoon, Claire, and good afternoon, Gemma. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, the white paper is really just a statement of intent. There'll be consultation followed by whatever the art of the possible allows in terms of implementation. But you can't help but sense the revolutionary, iconoclastic zeal that infuses the white paper. The planning system is outdated and ineffective, a relic from the middle of the 20th century. It is a building no longer fit for human habitation. The vision is no more fiddling around the edges, painting over the damp patches, but leveling the foundations and building from the ground up, a whole new planning system for Harry, England and St. George. There will be much cutting of red tape, but not standards. You feel Churchill rushing through your veins in the PM's introduction. It's also starting to sound like a speech of a member of the National Assembly at the outset of the French Revolution, damning the Ancien Regime, ending feudalism and reconstructing France from the ground up. That brought a rationalised legal system and democracy, but also a pointless changing of things like the annual calendar and, of course, chopping off thousands of nobles' heads in the terror. And after all the chaos, everyone welcomed back a king and most of the old system, followed by lots of more bloody revolutions, all pretty miserable. Here, the government has hailed its proposals as a fundamental overhaul of the planning system. But we have been here before, kind of like Groundhog Day, actually. The statute books are full of decades of much heralded new systems dropped in to reform the planning system that nobody uses today. Some might say that the existing red tape is about maintaining standards. On a smallish island, can you really cut the tension between promoting development and economic growth on one hand and still embracing environmental standards, cherishing your historical environment and holding the green belt on a pedestal on the other? It's not as easy as lopping off people's heads, or is it? Like our clients, we embrace change and strive for simplicity. So today, we will summarise the new planning system that is being proposed, so you don't have to read all 84 pages of it, and we offer views on how it could all work in practice for developers. Anyway, after months of a New York-style zoning system being trailed, the planning white paper landed on the 6th of August. It's planning, Jim, but not as we know it. Gemma. Can you talk us through the overarching structure of the white paper? Sure, Sheridan. So the white paper divides its proposed reform to the planning system into three broad themes, which it calls pillars. Pillar one is called planning for development. And this pillar, it focuses on revamping the current local plan system, perhaps most radically by allocating land into three categories or zones with specific rules about how each zone can be developed. Pillar two is called planning for beautiful and sustainable places, so a focus on design. 
And pillar three is called planning for infrastructure and connected places. And the pillar explores removing the existing regimes of community infrastructure levy SIL and section 106 planning obligations to secure developer contributions and replacing this with a new consolidated infrastructure levy. And each uh, pillar kind of hedges its bets a bit, doesn't it? Exactly. So in the first part of each pillar, the radical change is outlined and reasoned. And then towards the end of each pillar, a significantly watered down alternative is muted, which is far less radical. That's pretty unusual, Gemma, and suggests a bit of a lack of confidence that true radicalism is achievable. Now, I touched on the revolutionary politics of it all earlier, and I was being a little unfair. There's been a lot of thought on all of this. And the government's task force that produced the white paper included some top planning experts. One was Chris, Christopher Katkowski QC, affectionately known as KitKat, one of England's top rated planning QCs, whom BCLP has been proud to instruct on many an occasion. So uh, share a little bit about how he described the vision for the proposed new planning regime on Zach Simon's fantastic Ask a Planarec blog. Yes, that, that's right, Sheridan. So KitKat explained that the vision here is to create an efficient, inclusive and accessible planning system in which everyone can contribute to making the area in which they live in somewhere that they can have pride in, where no one is excluded and where everyone can understand what's going on and play a worthwhile part in getting things right. And when KitKat was asked which three words he would like people to be using to describe the reformed English planning system in 10 years' time, KitKat replied, inclusive, accessible and understandable. Uh, so, ultimately plumps for the more or less radical option in each pillar, the reforms are at the very least targeting simplicity. Claire, that brings us nicely to pillar one planning for development. Local uh, plans are first up for reform, aren't they? Yes, that's right, Sheridan. It's true that local plans take a very long time to produce, on average over seven years. They're too long and become out of date quickly, and they do spend a lot of time repeating national policy. The white paper considers that the reams of general development management policies makes the planning system difficult to understand and ultimately they hinder development rather than helping it. However, the government isn't proposing to abolish local plans altogether, but rather to refocus them and strip them back so that they are much shorter and consist of a map or a series of maps a key and some text and no general development management policies at all. These will instead be contained only in the NPPF. And crucially, all the land within the authority's boundary will be identified by the map as falling within one of three categories or zones. Each zone will then contain rules, similar to zoning rules, about how that zone can be developed. The zoning rules would outline the suitable development uses that the particular zone with the accompanying text, setting out some parameters for development, for example, height and density. And sub areas within zones could also be identified where different rules apply. Ah, the much mooted US style zoning. Before we dive into that, I must just commend the webinar BCLP ran jointly with landmark chambers in July on whether zoning could work in the UK. We'll put a link on our podcast page. Judy Gallant, 
head of BCLP's US planning and zoning practice, she gave a fantastic explanation of how in New York City, you can build as of right within their 1961 zoning resolution, so long as you stick to the zoned use class for your zone and the specified permitted size of the building relative to its plot, maximum building coverage, distance to neighbors, parking and open space. A skilled architect prepares drawings with advice of a zoning consultant and lawyer if there are issues of interpretation. You submit your proposal to the Department of Buildings. The public can challenge it. And once the department is satisfied, then you get issued a building permit. And if you don't comply with zoning, you can still get a discretionary permit. But it's no magic bullet. Zoning, it was said, seems to be inherently attractive to those who have never used it. A lot of the complexity is offshored to parallel regimes for environmental and heritage requirements. And the current zoning resolution, if I got it right, runs to 1500 pages just for New York City. But we're open to this brave new world. So, so Claire, tell us more. Well, the first proposed zone is the growth areas. The idea is that these zones contain land suitable for substantial development, which is a term that would be defined in policy to, as the white paper says, remove any debate. Fantastic. The planning bar probably anticipates years of judicial review work over that one alone. You're probably right, um, especially because here we're talking about potentially high value land. So land which is suitable for comprehensive development, for example, new settlements and land for redevelopment, such as former industrial sites. As soon as the stripped back local plan is adopted, development for the prescribed uses within areas allocated as growth areas is granted outline planning permission automatically by the plan itself. You, you by the plan itself. So, so the principle of that kind of use in that location is established, assuming your development falls within defined parameters of height, density and scale in the local plan. Exactly, but you still need a detailed consent through what is promised will now be a faster and streamlined consenting route, which focuses on design and site-specific technical issues. So detailed or full planning permission could be secured in one of three ways, through a reformed reserve matters process, a local development order, or a development consent order for exceptionally large sites, so for example, new towns. At the moment, uh, Gemma, if you have outline permission approving the principle and parameters of the scheme, you then go for approval of reserve matters like layout, access, scale and appearance of the development. It's all pretty uncontroversial and technical by that stage. So I can see that uh, local development orders have been around for a while and are locally focused planning tools that local authorities can use to grant permission for specific types of development within a defined geographical area, kind of like localized permitted development rights. So I can see that too. So it looks like tweaking existing planning tools that were already a bit akin to mini zoning into bigger zoning. But development consent orders aren't an existing form of permitted development or detailed approval with the principle already established, are they? You're right, basically. We've obviously acted on a lot of the major energy, aviation, wastewater, DCOs, development consent orders. Those are under the bespoke consenting regime for nationally significant infrastructure projects under the Planning Act 2008. 
we and others have been saying for a long time that DCOs could and should be a consenting option for major resi schemes. But I'm not sure how that fits into zoning right now. There's a lot more certainty in decision making and examination of applications is a lot more technical than political. So I can see why it's, it's touched on here. National policy statements do establish a policy presumption in favour of the infrastructure type, provided all of the general development management principles are met in the statements, which does remove a lot of the debate and is the reason for the greater political certainty and 90% plus approval rate for DCOs. But promoters still need to comply with the reams of general development management principles in these statements. Yes, and the airport's national policy statement is over 90 pages. Well, exactly, Gemma. These DCO applications are fast-tracked compared to the years and years of days of York for infrastructure, but you're still talking about six months to a year or more of pre-application public consultation and around 15 months from submission to a decision. Maybe government is mooting that the local plans, the new local plans, will zone growth areas for housing and then basically fulfill the principle of development role that national policy statements do for infrastructure, together with the NPPF providing centralised general development management principles. It won't be that fast track, but I can see it being helpful. Um, I caught up with Carl Craddock, head of energy and infrastructure at Savills earlier for his thoughts on this. Here's Carl. The white paper is typically vague on the question of how the DCO option would apply, noting only that, and I quote, for exceptionally large sites, such as a new town, where there are often land assembly and planning challenges, we also want to explore whether a development consent order under the nationally significant infrastructure projects regime could be an appropriate route to secure detailed planning permission. Similarly, we will consider how the planning powers for development corporations can be reformed to reflect this new framework. That's what the white paper says. Now, I think the attraction of the DCO consenting route for the government is that it has a proven track record of delivering consents for large items in relatively short order. And to that extent, it will be worth exploring. However, to date, DCO applications have generally been used for set piece developments with a single purpose. So a power station, a road, a railway connection, and so on. Furthermore, DCO applications are often made effectively an outline with much design detail left to subsequent local determination through the discharge of DCO requirements. Now, in contrast, the purpose of DCO applications as envisaged in the white paper is to deliver detailed consents for new towns in growth areas identified in adopted local plans. A new town is an immensely complex organism requiring a wide range of infrastructure and a large ongoing design input. I'm unconvinced that these detailed design considerations could be resolved within the rigid six-month framework of a DCO examination unless much of the detail is left to be resolved after consent through DCO requirements. And what you then have is a Russian doll consent rather than the detailed design sign-off envisaged by the white paper. So I think what needs to happen uh, is that we need to look at how DCO drafting could be amended to admit the flexibility post-consent uh, that's often essential for delivering uh, large housing and certainly for new communities. So overall, I think it's helpful to have uh, the DCO as a consenting option, uh, provided it can be made to work for 
this much more complex and organic form of development. And another option, as the white paper also acknowledges, is the use of development corporations, uh, which have a track record in delivering uh, uh, new communities at new town scale. They offer detailed day-to-day decision-making, not just during an initial determination period, but over the years it then takes to actually deliver living, breathing, attractive new communities. Okay, so what's the second uh, zone, Gemma? It sounds like that movie, Good Morning Vietnam, you know, you're now entering a free fire zone where anything could happen. Follow the Ho Chi Minh Trail to homes for all in England's green and pleasant land. I, I don't think uh, zone two um, is, is like that, but go on. <laughs> so the second proposed zone is renewal areas, which are suitable for development. This could include existing built areas where smaller scale development is appropriate, the gentle densification and infill of residential areas, development in town centres, and also development in rural areas not allocated as growth or protected. Again, it's the local plan that would set out the acceptable parameters, so the acceptable uses, heights and densities. In renewal areas, there isn't this automatic outline planning permission, as is the case with growth areas. But instead, there's a strengthened version of the statutory presumption in favour of development being granted for those uses specified as being appropriate in each area. And this statutory presumption in favour of development would be established in legislation. There would ultimately have to be a very good reason for the permission to be refused if you were applying for something which is already marked out as being suitable. There would, however, be opportunities to resist inappropriate development in some cases. In renewal areas, planning consent would be granted automatically if the scheme meets design and other prior approval requirements for pre-specified forms of development. It could be granted through a faster planning application process where a planning application is determined in the context of the description of, of appropriate development in the area or the site set out in the local plan and with reference to the MPPF. It would be granted through a local or neighbourhood development order. Specific planning applications required for proposals that deviate from the local plan or through the expansion of permitted development rights to include popular and replicable designs. Okay, so that doesn't sound as radical and, and is tweaking what we have. Claire, what about the third proposed zone? Well, the third proposed zone um, are the protected areas. So here we are talking about the green belt areas of outstanding natural beauty, conservation areas, local wildlife sites, areas of significant flood risk, and important areas of green space. Okay, so this one sounds to me like the Romulan neutral zone in Star Trek. That's an exclusion zone between the, the United Federation of Planets and the Romulan Empire, where entry into this no man's land by either side is an act of war and just gets blasted. Well, <laughs> basically, yes. Um, not much has changed here. In fact, nothing has changed here. There would be the same stringent development controls in these zones with planning applications submitted to the local authority and assessed against the NPPF as currently exists. I'd also just like to say at this point that the white paper anticipates that even in growth and renewal areas, you can bring forward schemes that are different to the plan through a full planning application. I see. So whatever parallel zoning regime is brought in, developers can still make speculative applications against the NPPF. Gemma, you caught up with a partner in our team, Giles Pink, earlier, and he shared an interesting insight into why the simple three-tier zoning allocation 
is such a fundamental public policy change? Here's Charles. I think pillar one is split into 10 proposals and the local plan proposals, uh, which are set out in proposal one, um, are probably the headline grabbing part of the whole white paper. And it's the introduction of zoning concepts, which um, we're obviously uh, familiar with within BCLP from our New York practice um, and the way it's done over there. Here, we're saying there are gonna be three or proposed to be three different zones, a growth zone, a renewal zone, a protected zone. Um, it sounds very simple, but the, the underlying principle here is to get away from a planning system that uh, was seen to ration land and ration development rights um, and move to a freer market uh, position, which is to say, um, instead of rationing, you know, starting from the from a point, the de facto point under the current system as the government sees it of you can't do anything on your land unless you get planning permission or are allocated in a, in a plan and therefore you are sub, uh, subject to a hundred different policies um, in a 300 page local plan um, together with SPG, um, perhaps an area action plan uh, and all sorts of other documents. Um, it simply says, um, is your land within a zone? Um, is that zone a growth zone, which um, is, is to be very pro um, large scale development? Um, is it uh, in a renewal zone, which means um, you are allowed to develop it generically for specified purposes within specified parameters? Um, or is it in a protected zone where the assumption will be that I think you can't develop the land um, and, and, and that is the single biggest change, simply because um, there will be a degree of uh, uh, automatic permissions, so an automatic outline consent for development in certain zones that comply with certain criteria. Now, lots of new, shiny, refocused local plans are at the heart of making these three zones growth, renewal and protected a reality. How does the white paper see us overhauling the procedure to get us to the promised land of zoning, unlocking a form of valuable land right across so much of England fast enough? Gemma. Well, there are changes to the hoops that councils have to pass through to issue their local plans, but also to the statutory timetable for key stages of the local plan making process. Yes, that's right. The test for soundness, which is where local plans can only be adopted if they are found to be legally and procedurally sound in accordance with four tests in the NPPF, is being dropped. It would be replaced by a single and consolidated statutory sustainable development test, which would include a simpler consideration of the environmental impacts to ensure the plans strike the right balance between environmental, social and economic objectives. The duty to cooperate which requires local planning authorities to work with other authorities beyond their own administrative boundaries, is also proposed to be revoked. There's also a proposed top-down approach to housing. Councils won't need to demonstrate a five-year housing supply. Instead, there'd be a new binding national standard methodology for calculating an authority's housing requirement, with local plans required to identify the areas in which housing, 
businesses and community needs can be met for at least the next 10 years. This approach would distribute the national house building target between local authorities, and it would take into account locally specific constraints. The housing delivery test would remain, and as would neighbourhood plans. And on timetable, an ambitious 30-month statutory timescale is proposed for the production of the new local plans. I must say, if I were a council with a shiny old version local plan, I'd just spent seven years dragging through the process. I think I'd just cry. I know. Although the white paper does provide transition provisions for authorities who have adopted a local plan within the previous three years, or where a plan has been submitted to the Secretary of State for examination. Look, I, th I think it's one thing to set a 30-month timescale, even for what is basically a digitised site allocation plan. But statutory timescales haven't meant much in other parts of the planning system, unless the decision-maker really takes it to heart. White paper talks of local planning authorities that fail to do what is required to get their plan in place or keep it up to date, being at risk of government intervention, including government issuing directions and preparing a plan in consultation with local people instead. But it must be hard to see government actually stepping in too often, though. Again, partner Giles Pink. Proposal 8 is... Uh... You know, and you can see government's logic here. They go through these proposals, think, right, we'll, we'll zone to release more land, standardised methodology um, to ensure more land is released. Um, oh, right, what's next? Um, we'll, we'll simplify those plans to make it, uh, uh, to, 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 to sit alongside the principle of a simplified um, and, and shorter local plan process. Um, right, next stage is to simplify the consenting process for for. for proposals that comply with the rules, I tick that box, um, tech because digitization is is an important part of you know modern day democratic process. Um, and then we get on to the the other big issue of, 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 of local plans that exists at the moment, which is timing. It takes authorities years to put in place um, their local plans. So we need to address that. And so they move on to proposal eight and it's a statutory timetable of 30 months um, uh, with a five-year review. Um, and there will be a stick to beat local authorities with because there are many local authorities who, frankly, would rather be able to say uh, politically, um, we are fighting against unscrupulous developers who want to develop in inappropriate locations in our area. And, and who um, would rather, therefore, hand that responsibility to the Secretary of State and the Planning Inspectorate through um, appeals, um, rather than a, a plan positively for it, um, and therefore take the political flak locally. Um, government is saying, no, um, you've got to get on with it, you've got to be up to date, um, and if you're not up to date, um, we will threaten to come in and make your plan for you whether that is a real threat, whether that ever ever can be achievable politically, um, you know, government coming in and imposing a local plan on a local authority or, or, or taking over to, to push it through remains to be said. It's, it seems there does need to be something to ensure that local authorities push this through and review their policies um, to keep them up to date. That's it. That's key. 
first and foremost, that needs to be funded. Secondly, um, there needs to be something to compel local authorities to do it. Um, but but just what that kind of instrument of compulsion will be remains to be seen and, 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 and whether actually it's something that local authorities genuinely think government would use against them. As any good revolutionary will tell you, you have to be ruthless when reinventing your society. To keep my pretty silly French revolutionary analogy going, they had the Committee of Public Safety to protect the New Republic against internal rebellion. It ended up organising the terror. It's not clear to me on this whether there will be sufficient terror or indeed cash to underpin this wholesale move to local plans refocused to zoning. Well, on the subject of radicalism, I also asked Giles how much of Pillar 1 he thinks will actually happen following consultation. I, I think it's um, because the proposals are so wide ranging and fundamental, there are certain there are certain things that do have to sit together. Um, you can't you can't introduce a zone introducing a zoning system by itself with a simplified has to sit with a simplified consenting process that won't lead to um, the right sort of development in the right places um, it won't it won't address the affordability issues of homes for example um, if you don't together with that a encourage development to take place but b release more land and zone more land and so you know it, it won't um, you won't encourage development unless local the local plan process is um, you, you front end the, the role of local democracy to, to, the, to the to that local plan process to try and keep in inverted commas local democracy away from the actual decision making process which is where it currently sits and currently causes delay so you've got to move that forward so it depends it depends you inevitably these things you know through consultation they're designed to provoke thought there will be some sort of compromise proposal but there are certain elements to it that sit together the dig digitization parts of it are of, you know re to be honest have they got anything to do with local plan streamlining not really that's just about accessibility that that's something that could be done um and pushed as part of a, a completely separate agenda but things like, you know, speeding up the statutory timetable and finding a way to force local authorities to keep up to date their local plans is important. Um, a lot of this requires a lot of funding and we don't know where that funding is coming from. Um, but, but there are certain groups of things that have to sit together. Um, I think, I think that the thing, things like how you, how you ensure build out once you've got your consents in place, that's a difficult nut to crack that might be push down the line um, but there are certain you know the, the zoning together with ease of consent together with um, simplifying the local plan process and centralizing development management policies seems to be a grouping that could come through in some form together um, if government wants to do that um, that said the obvious thing to if if, if it if you were looking to compromise and you were looking to make it just less different, the real key on the basis that there is a lot of good stuff in, in, in the existing system around local plans. Actually, if you just drop the zoning bit and, and you and you just and you just encouraged, you know, you simplified local plans, 
you encouraged regular review and, and a quick um, a, a process to get to adoption, and then you incentivized developers through a consenting regime that says, right, there are certain, so, you know, if you can tick these boxes through an, a local development order or whatever else, whatever, whatever requirements are in your simplified local plan, then we, we can, you know, in an, in an enhanced permissions in principle scenario, we can, we, we, we can give you consent without it needing to go to planning committee because democracy has been pushed to the front end rather than the back end. You, you could see a, a way to do this without and capture most of those 10 proposals without the kind of headline grabbing zoning bit at the front. But I'm, I'm not sure whether or not government wants, whether it quite likes that kind of headline grabbing. Um, and so would want to stick with it. But actually a lot of this stuff doesn't need zoning. It just needs, it just needs, um, you know, the, the practical measures and the funding that sit beneath it. Okay, so it's starting to sound like we may end up with the less radical alternative in Pillar 1, where there might only be automatic permission in principle for land identified for substantial development in local plans, and other areas of land would, as now, be identified for different forms of development in ways determined by the local planning authority under the existing planning system. Right, let's move on to Pillar 2 planning for beautiful and sustainable places. Gemma, what is the goal here? Well, in chatting through the evolution of the white paper, KitKat has explained that an important theme of their discussions, which we can see is now reflected in the white paper proposals, was to ensure that people could have homes that they are proud to live in, good to look at, adopt the right standards and have access to open space. And how's that supposed to happen? Guides and codes and lots of guides and codes. So a national design guide, a national mod model design code and a revised manual for streets would have a direct influence on the design of new communities. The proposal here is that these design guides and codes should only be given weight in the planning process if it can be demonstrated that effective input from the local community has been secured, with planning decisions on design made in line with all of these guides and codes. Also, each authority is supposed to appoint a chief officer for design and placemaking, and there could be a new expert national body to oversee effective use of design guidance and codes. Wow, a, a, a beauty and design SAR. There'll be a lot of resource needed to underpin all of this. Claire, you picked up Pillar 2 with our very own Robert Gowing, now a senior associate in our planning team, but formerly pretty senior in English heritage as it then was. Here's Robert on the scale of it all. Firstly, it's important to understand the ambitious nature of these proposals. The scale of this task to enable them to go ahead should not be underestimated, nor should the resources needed for this. The government has identified the need for a new national body, though of course the creation of such bodies is not actually that new. We can look back to as early as 1924, when the Royal Fine Art Commission was first established, or we can go to 1991 when this spawned the Centre for Architecture and the Built Environment, otherwise known as CABE, or in 2011 when CABE was morphed and arguably diluted into part of the Design Council. The precedent for such body does therefore exist, but ensuring it has the correct brief, sufficient lobby powers and the necessary resources is unlikely to be simple or easily agreed. They then recognise the need for local authorities to establish some sort of chief officer for design and placemaking, 
that they give us no indication of how this would be funded or whether it would be a new role or just a new job title. Those people would then lead the development and publication of local design codes and guidance. That guidance will sit alongside the National Model Design Code, which has not yet been published, but forms part of the National Design Guide. So there's a lot that needs to be put in place before one even starts thinking about design codes and standards, let alone how to ensure these will reflect popular design elements as understood in any local community. There would be a so-called fast track for beauty, so that where certain developments comply with local design guides and codes, they could be expedited through the planning process. The government intends to revive the tradition of pattern books in renewal areas by allowing the pre-approval of popular and replicable designs through permitted development. Local people would be able to engage in setting the pattern book developments for the area in which they live. Here's Robert again on that. And this brings me to my second point. It really isn't clear what the government means by design codes and design guidance, but what is clear is they expect this to form some sort of detailed design parameters guiding physical development. They also consider that if developers follow these parameters, permission should be a virtual certainty, particularly in the renewal areas where this can provide, as they say, popular and replicable development as part of the gentle intensification of towns and cities. My concern is how do you reach a common consensus on what design details are actually popular and how long can such a position remain relevant in our ever-changing society? It will be hard enough to establish these codes, let alone how often they would need to be renewed or reviewed to remain sufficiently appropriate. My real worry is that in establishing some form of pattern book or design code which sets out minimum standards, that it then becomes a case of meeting those minimum standards rather than creating the best possible development. There is a real risk that councils will be forced to accept barely acceptable schemes just because they can demonstrate they meet the parameters in any agreed local code, or even less, the less specific national codes. Getting something beautiful out of such an arrangement is clearly not guaranteed and arguably may be unlikely in a lot of instances. Well, building beautiful is an admirable ambition, but beauty is always in the eye of the beholder. If there's to be extensive local engagement in deciding what is beautiful, I'm not sure how there'll be a clear and unified local design code and guidance in any area. Again, let's get Robert's insight. Here's Robert. My last point would be just to ask whether what is popular is always the same as what is beautiful. As Sheridan quite rightly said, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The UK is great for looking to embrace diversity and inclusion in our society, but it is not clear how this could be accurately reflected in some form of codified set of design rules. More importantly, those rules won't necessarily foster or encourage innovation or creativity, which in my view lies at the heart of most good design. Such innovation often breaks molds and challenges, public perception, which can take time to bed in. If you look at the example of the 1912 Loos House in Vienna by Adolf Loos, it was so heavily criticized when first built, but is now recognized as one of the most important examples of the Vienna modern and an important part of the development of early modernism right across Europe. In England, there are equally good examples where buildings we now accept as important 
and significant heritage assets in their own right, were shocking mold breakers when they were first built and often very unpopular in the local community. In shifting to rules and pattern books, driving automatic approvals, we must ensure we don't lose sight of the importance of new design and the creative process. Wow, what it is to have a lawyer like Robert on our team. Who else can name any modern building in Vienna? Anyway, signature design has always been a fast ticket through planning and many of the landmark schemes we've been involved in have embraced that. But I can imagine a lot of developers just covering their heads in agony, thinking about how much complying with all of these policies across the board will increase development costs. And whose end is that cost going to come from in terms of viability and delivery? But every revolution needs to be funded, usually by invading neighboring countries. Now, let's follow the money by moving to pillar three, planning for infrastructure and connect spaces. The white paper moots creating a new infrastructure levy on the basis of a fixed proportion of the development value of a scheme above a threshold. This would combine the community infrastructure levy, SIL, and section 106 obligations, which would both be scrapped. Option one mooted is a compulsory infrastructure levy set nationally, even if there are area rates. Option two is leaving councils to decide if they want to introduce a local infrastructure levy, but they'll basically have to, as section 106 would have been scrapped and there'd be no other way of getting affordable housing contributions or affordable housing. So consultation by Hobson's choice. Anyway, after years of government trailing land value capture, it might finally be here. That's the slightly statist idea that issuing planning permission is basically a public policy decision. Landowners currently retain too large a proportion of the increase in land value arising from that decision and that local authorities should get a much bigger cut to help fund related infrastructure. But land value capture usually comes a cropper in practice as you have to strike the right balance between capturing fair values for the community without undermining incentives for private sector participation in the market on the other hand. But as they say, come the revolution, we'll be getting you all and maybe it's here. Yes, that's right. Um, the infrastructure levy would be calculated when planning permission is granted in the same way as SIL currently is and paid on occupation rather than an implementation of the development, as is the case with SIL. The local authority would then collect the revenues and spend them locally. One thing I'm not too clear on, Claire, is if Section 106 is, is going, where does affordable housing fit into all of this exactly? Well, the new system would allow for affordable housing to be provided as an in-kind payment of the infrastructure levy. And what this means in practice is that the levy would be discounted if affordable housing is provided on site, with the level of discount calculated by taking into account the difference between the price at which the affordable unit is sold to the provider and the market price. And structured in this way, it is hoped uh, will incentivize developers to build on-site affordable housing. Now, Gemma caught up earlier with Tim Smith, partner in our planning team, on whether developers should mourn the passing, uh, the possible passing of Section 106 planning obligations. Here's Tim. 
certainly there has been a criticism of Section 106 agreements uh, in the past, um, that they are opaque, um, that only developers and local authorities can see what is going on. Um, also, that um, members of the local community have no certainty as to what Section 106 obligations are going to be negotiated in any given case. So it's no surprise, nor is it the first proposal of its kind, to abolish Section 106 negotiations and replace them with nationally or locally standard tariff-based obligations. There are, I think, a couple of things which need to be carefully considered before this proposal is embraced. The first one is that negotiations do allow for a much greater degree of flexibility than a tariff-based charge allows. Um, and so in instances where, um, let's say, the viability of a locally set tariff has disproportionate effects for a particular desirable development, let's say bringing back into use a redundant building or regenerating an area which has long since been in need of regeneration, then a Section 106 negotiation allows for some dispensation recognising the importance of the development coming forward and relinquishing some of the obligations that would otherwise be imposed. That is much more difficult to do with a locally set uh, formula-based tariff. Uh, and so it remains to be seen whether, um, despite all of the assurances that safeguards will be built in to incentivise bringing forward sites which are ripe for development, that is actually the case. I also asked him if the new infrastructure levy could pump prime the major infrastructure needed to unlock development. An interesting part of the proposals is that local authorities will be allowed to borrow against the infrastructure levy revenues um, that they can expect from development so that they can forward fund infrastructure. Um, and this tackles what would have been one of the criticisms of the proposals, no doubt, compared with community infrastructure levy, which is that community infrastructure levy does allow for the forward funding of infrastructure needed to serve developments which later come forward. Forward. Whether or not this serves to incentivise local authorities to forward fund infrastructure, um, I must say I have my doubts. It is still a very volatile income stream for local authorities that whilst they might have predicted with a reasonable degree of accuracy the amount of receipts that would come forward from the infrastructure levy over a period of time, even once a planning permission has been granted, there is no guarantee that the planning permission will be implemented. Uh, and if not implemented, um, then the land value capture doesn't get to be paid. So for local authorities to take borrowing on the expectation of infrastructure levy receipts um, seems to me to be something which is fraught with difficulty. Uh, and whether it proves to be attractive to local authorities, uh, I must say I do have my doubts. Gemma, did Tim offer a view on the white paper basically shifting a lot of responsibility for delivering affordable housing from developers to councils? Yes, he did. Here's Tim. Affordable housing has been uh, the area of planning gain which is most difficult to secure um, and it is probably for that reason that when the community infrastructure levy was introduced in 2010, affordable housing was excluded from it and it was left to Section 106 negotiations uh, to deliver the affordable housing requirements from policy. What that has meant is that the emphasis remains with developers to provide their affordable housing contributions. Um, 
What we have with the latest proposals, though, is something which the White Paper acknowledges will place a greater emphasis on local authorities delivering. There will still be the ability for a developer to provide in-kind affordable housing, and that will be offset against the infrastructure levy that would otherwise be chargeable on their development. But it seems to me as though any kind of shift of responsibility and risk away from developer and onto local authority will have the consequent uh, impact on the levels of delivery of affordable housing. Affordable housing uh, is one of the things which is most carefully scrutinised whenever we look at the success or otherwise of the planning system. Uh, inevitably, two things are talked about. How many new houses are we delivering and how many new affordable houses are we delivering? Anything which relies upon a local authority to be able to deliver uh, affordable housing to a greater extent than is the case at the moment uh, is something which seems to me to be a risk uh, to the levels of delivery and certainly not something which is likely to improve um, affordable housing provision, something which was one of the hallmarks of the government's proposals uh, and announcements before the white paper was produced. One of the things which Section 106 uh, does produce for affordable housing um, is a good balance between the needs of the local authority and the developer and the registered provider that will ultimately take the as-constructed affordable housing uh, once they've been handed to them by the developer. Uh, whether that remains the case under an infrastructure levy, I have to say I'm sceptical. Admittedly, the white paper doesn't include a huge amount of detail on how these mechanisms will be introduced, um, but from what I've seen, I certainly haven't seen a magic bullet which is going to solve the issues uh, with the under-delivery of affordable housing that we have experienced so far. I must say, if there doesn't seem to be a magic bullet on affordable housing, it does beg the question of whether consultees across the spectrum will agree it's worth such upheaval. Also, no developers welcome up to a year being added, heaven forbid, to getting a consent after a resolution to grant from a council, which happens when, when there's a bun fight about viability and affordable housing in, in, in the Section 106 negotiations. But will developers really welcome a non-negotiable flat rate akin to SIL with no scope for a bun fight at all? I saw the white paper said there will be a value-based minimum threshold below which the levy is not charged to prevent low viability development becoming unviable, reflecting average build costs per square metre with a small fixed allowance for land costs. Where the value of development is below the threshold, no levy would be charged. That sounds great, but build costs are not really the controversial part of a viability assessment in determining how much affordable housing must be delivered uh, or, or affordable housing contributions a developer has to pay to achieve planning permission for a residential scheme. The debate usually focuses on benchmark land values. The white paper suggests totally shutting that down if there's only going to be a small fixed allowance for land costs, ignoring how much many developers actually paid for their sites or even should have paid, even given appropriate currently policy compliant comparables. Anyway, listeners will be thinking this is all very interesting, but how much of this is likely to actually happen. A final word from Carl Craddock at Savills. This has been an interesting discussion, not least because it highlights some of the pertinent real world questions left unanswered by the white paper. Uh, I think the government makes no secret over its frustration at the pace of decision making in planning, 
and the obstacles to housing delivery. But there has to be a question over whether the white paper has identified where the real problems lie. Now, we know that town planning is anathematic to some free market purists, and the starting point for the white paper appears to be that planning is a necessary evil rather than a vital cog in sustaining a modern economy. Uh, I think the white paper ignores the fact that the planning system is already allocating land and delivering consents well in advance of the ability of house builders to deliver those projects. The white paper avoids the question of how local authorities should be expected to provide prompt, high quality decision making when planning departments have typically faced budget reductions of an average 40 percent since 2010. I think fundamentally the white paper does not properly address what should be its biggest priority, affordable housing delivery. Research undertaken by Savills a few, few years ago showed that the UK house building industry has, over decades, only been able to deliver on average a typical 180 to 200,000 units per year. And this was the case as far back as the 1950s. And as the Churchill and Macmillan governments of the time understood, the only way to deliver housing in advance of those numbers was to fund a substantial programme of public housing. And more than anything, it's the rise and fall of public housing provision that has determined the peaks and troughs of overall housing delivery in the UK since the war, as opposed to planning prevarication. So I'm concerned that loosening the planning system in the way the government seems intent on doing will deliver only limited additional housing and that much of that will be substandard and far from the high quality aspirational developments pictured throughout the white paper. So overall, I think the white paper, it throws out a, a lot of ideas. It's more like a green paper in many respects. Uh, those ideas are very interesting, uh, but at this stage, it's hard to see whether uh, what the white paper proposes will make things easier or harder uh, for our clients. Now, in the meantime, the consultation closes on the 29th of October, as we know, and BCLP and Savills will be assisting clients in making representations and will then continue to help our clients to respond to what then comes. I must say, you can always rely on Carl for a strategic insight taking the long view. Anyway, as ever with these things, we'll have to see what this looks like after consultation. In 1849, a French writer wrote, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. The more things change, the more they stay the same. After yet another French Revolution had resulted in a situation that looked different, but not much had actually changed. And I think English planning tends to be pretty much the same. That's great, Sheridan. But actually, it's plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. Ah. That was Isabelle Laborde, one of our top environmental team and a native French speaker. What can I say? Languages and planning, both a never-ending learning curve. Thank you for listening to the Planning Life Insights of Brian. You've been listening to Gemma Green, Claire Coles, and me, Sheridan Traeger of BCLP Planning, with contributions from Carl Craddock of Savills and Tim Smith, Charles Pink, and Robert Gowing, also of BCLP Planning. And with special thanks to Emily Craig and Ollie Greaves in the BCLP Planning team for their contributions behind the scenes. You'll be hearing from us again, and the Planning Life Insights of Brian will return with more on what you need to know about where the planning system ends up at in these interesting times. Who knows? Keep well and keep safe.